Hello, welcome to the full unedited version. Well, apart from, obviously, there are some edits because of things that we said which just are not apparently acceptable in any form of human society. But predominantly unedited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Hello, welcome to another episode of Book Shambles. And this is the last episode of this season, uh, season seven, as Josie heads off on maternity leave for a few months. But don't worry, we won't be leaving your ears. We have got lots of specials coming up. We've got the live shows we've been doing recorded. They'll be coming out as well. Uh, And we'll be doing some more episodes with uh, special guest co-hosts while Josie is uh, spending time with her lovely new daughter. And the next live event is June 11, part two of our recordings at Royal Albert Hall. Robin will be hosting with our special guest co-host for those events, Sarah Kendall. And our guests on the 11th will be Hannah Fry and Adam Buxton. You can go to the Royal Albert Hall website to get tickets for those. And we are getting very close to June 15, which means Space Shambles is just around the corner. Our huge, spectacular show in the main room at Royal Albert Hall, hosted by Robin and Commander Chris Hadfield. Guests there include Rusty Schweikart from Apollo 9, Stuart Lee, Professor Jim Al-Khalili, Festival of the Spoken Nerd, Grace Petrie, Professor Monica Grady. Uh, We've announced some new guests just last week as well. Dr. Helen Chersky, uh, Professor Chris Lintot and Dr. Susie Imber from the BBC Astronauts program. And we have still got lots of other amazing uh, surprise guests as well. Tickets are available for that from Royal Albert Hall. There are still some £9 tickets available, so make sure you jump on the site and get those. And we've got some other live Book Shambles events coming up at the Edinburgh Fringe as well, which we'll let you know about soon. We're doing some events at uh, Latitude Festival, Uh, so if you're at Latitude, check out the website. You'll find out the stuff we're doing there. But for now, let's get on to this week's episode. This is Robin and Josie with Deborah Francis-White. Hello, welcome to Robin and Josie's Book Shambles. Uh, I'm Josie Long and (laughs) you're here listening to us. I am absolutely dire at starting them. Uh, um, Well, it's not easy because these are the the last before maternity leave, aren't they? We're on the the last few before uh, Josie goes off and then just rings up and goes, I don't need you anymore. I've got a child. Yeah, I made a child and I'm going to just do podcasts with my (laughs) one-month-old. I deliberately don't have the umbilical cord to start. Can't escape, can't escape. You know that the placenta comes out as well. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. not like the cord will stay with me. No, but it will do if They'll you just, just if you've done those pelvic floor exercises. I'm sure it'll be absolutely Oof. fine. Yeah. I tell you what, being pregnant, there are a number of things that nobody tells you in advance, and yes, that's there's all kinds of extra stuff that I won't go into. But we will do in about six months' time. Mm, I imagine. Yes. Yes. Um, we're joined by Deborah Francis White, who uh, I'm trying to think, guilty feminist, is enormously successful. Uh, podcast. It, it's it's uh, it's been lovely to do certainly. We've got lots of lovely, very enthusiastic listeners. Um, I mean, it's a it's a sort of time and a place thing as well, isn't it? I mean, we're all a bit we're all a bit desperate for tribe at the moment. I do think a lot of the success of the show is is women like coming out to see it, to be together, and to and for, to find an entertaining space that's joyful, naughty, not 
we're not getting this right, but we're, we're going to have some more goes at it anyway. I think that's the success of it. Well, because you mentioned Tribe, I'm going to go straight away. So when I was playing Glasgow Stand, mm. uh, a man came up to me after the gig and... Best uh, venue in the country, by the way. It, was, it is a lovely venue. They were such a... They're always a brilliant audience. It was brilliant. And, um, and we got chatting and he was angry with himself because he was in uh, late middle age and uh, he had only left the Jehovah's Witnesses about oh. 10 years before and he'd always loved science and he was kind of like, why did... And I, and I was just saying, but, you you know, it's you, there's no point in feeling guilty about it because it's not his fault he's indoctrinated. Mm. And we got talking about... And I said, do you know about Deborah Francois? He said, oh, yes, I've been in contact. And so because we've started on Tribe... I, and because before we were recording this, we were just talking about that moment where you start to assimilate why you've become what you've become and why you do what you do. Can you give those people who don't know a little bit about the background story of, of your time within the Jehovah's Witnesses? Yes, I was brought up Church of England, a perfectly standard uh, you know, experience as an Australian. Uh, technically, it was called Anglican because, but I mean, it was Church of England, effectively. That's so harsh that they couldn't even be like Church, Church of Australia. Australia. No, <laughs> Church of Australia is not a thing. It's, uh, it's, it's. I think they said Anglican, but we all we all called ourselves Church of England. Oh God, is and Church then... of Australia Hill Song? That's because that's the that, big thing, that's isn't it? Australians. I thought yeah. that was in America. I think Hillsong started no, in Australia. No, I think Hillsong Australia. It has yeah. loads of big, like some of some of the kind of uh, music stars and stuff. That that's come the out hipster Hillsong. one, isn't it? Yeah. Some of the heartland in Australia is very, very similar to America. You know those really big brick churches, a lot mm. of happy clappies, and sort of speaking in tongues. And my family actually got involved in that when I was a teenager. My church, my normal old Church of England church. Basically, a, a sort of charismatic element came in, and there was lots of healing and speaking in tongues, and it, it was all—it was all quite exciting. I don't mind telling you, uh, but I found it a little bit repellent as well. And then, my parents had always been looking for something, I think, and my mother had been called upon by a Jehovah's Witness lady for years, and then wow, she just she broke her down. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was it was door to door. Uh, we were we were we were a door conversion, but you have to start studying once a week. They come around to your house, and it was a Friday night during my teenage years, obviously. Rock, um, and I was about fourteen when we started studying. I was sixteen when I got baptized, which I I, I look back on that with some fury that I was a minor. I should not have been allowed to be baptized. I don't think you should be allowed. And they encourage people to get baptized earlier and earlier now to sort of lure them in because the Jehovah's Witnesses have got the worst retention rate of any religion for children. They don't, Children leave. More, worse than the Amish. Just oh, not great. That's not great. I mean, basically the Amish, but we can use zips. What can they do to get the Amish? I forget what it's called, that time Rumspringer. where they go away. Yeah, because there's a documentary that was uh, made all about when the uh, you know the, the teenagers go off and see yeah. the outside world and they then go hope and spend time with the English. Yeah. end up so badly that uh, they all want to rush back to the barn. Well, it sort of does because they're not prepared for the outside world. Mm. But what it's meant to demonstrate is, see, it's all satanic sort of thing. Mm. But the Jehovah's Witnesses do not encourage that kind of thing. But uh, I was... The thing is, I was very bright at school academically, um, So it's, and I really do not think... I think people think, oh, people who get into cults aren't bright or they're not academic, they're not critical thinkers. But I, it, I think the question is not who can join a cult, but more at what time in your life are you most susceptible mm. to join a cult. But also, if you're thirsty for ideas... Like, I had a meeting with a little 
a little boy, a young man, at uh, as part of uh, my charity, sort of pairs people up, and I end up chatting to him. And he'd been really like influenced by David Icke on YouTube, but he was so smart, smart and bright, and his brain was going so fast, and you could just feel that he hadn't got the nourishment he'd wanted. Yeah. So he'd found something that he could study and could yes. commit to, and could focus on. And I was like, I'm going to buy some books about philosophy and psychology. Yes. Well, funnily enough, my a lot of my waking up from the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, so I became a Jehovah's Witness. I was very, I really believed it. I really believed Armageddon was going to come. And as awful as it was for me to not go to university, I was, de- I mean, I was, I was devastated. I cried a lot when they told me I couldn't go to university. But they only told me after I got baptised. I didn't know that before. Whoa! Um, so you can't go to university as a Jehovah's you, Witness. You can a bit more now, but in those days, it wasn't an official rule. But it was the, it was a, it, you were so pressured. Or an elder came around. The elders are a sort of body of local men who are they appoint each other basically. Um, but it's just basically, honestly, it's they're not none of them be to theological school or anything. They just it's just two plumbers and electrician will come to your house on a Saturday afternoon and tell you your skirt's too short. And will they also regrout the bathroom? Y- yes, I never once paid to have any plumbing done, any electricity, anything you needed done in your house, rewiring, all done for free. Wow. Yeah, because we were sisters. We were young sisters. I, I moved out and I was pioneering, which meant knocking on doors full time. These days, they stand with a cart at the train station on their phones. Lazy. In my day... <laughs> They're everywhere, though, aren't his... they? There's an there's a incredible number of those carts with watchtower and whatever in it. Yeah. You have no idea how few infuriated ex-Jehovah's Witnesses are by the fact that now you can lean on a cart. Like they, they talk about it a lot on the groups. They're like, I saw them out there with their cart. Not in my day. We'd that have must to be so weird to be like, doors. excuse me, I have an objection to you. Yes, you're not being ardent enough in your evangelism for... In, your, in converting Show me people the sole to... of your shoes. Barely <laughs> eroded at all. Yeah. Not up the concrete stairs How of are you going to brainwash anyone <laughs> by leaning on a cart, though? I don't understand it. Like, when you go to the house, you can go back, you can get invited in. Anyway. Even leaning uh, on a cart sounds better than it really is. It's just kind of like little one of those plastic... If, if they were leaning on a cart, like a nice horse and cart, first of all, I'd be interested as a horse. Secondly, no why horse. is there a cart outside Milton Keynes Central Station? Let's find out what the story is. Next thing you know, I'm 78 years old and go, I can't believe it. I've been Jehovah's Witness for 30 years. It's only because I went over to feed a horse. So I think that... Oh, I it's... shouldn't be giving them ideas, should I? No. Or no, a donkey. Should... So, <laughs> a mule. So you, you felt... So committed to it as a cause that basically, even though personally you kind of felt a bit, even though personally you were like really torn up, you were like, I have to oh, 100%. focus on this. I truly believed Armageddon was going to come and God was going to kill everybody who didn't know about this and hadn't converted. So how and imminent? I, was, I would die if I didn't tell people. Oh how God. imminent is it then in, in, in the... Well, there's been a few soft launches for Armageddon, I <laughs> yeah. won't lie. Uh, there was 1975 was the big one. That was obviously before my time, but it was the big one. Um, and they'd never said it, but they implied it so heavily. People sold their houses, people gave up their jobs, people didn't have kids. There's whole generations of Jehovah's Witnesses that have had no kids because they keep being told Armageddon's coming. And there's a scripture in the New Testament. I don't mean this to be topical, Josie, and, <laughs> but it says in when, when it comes, um, it will be so terrible for the pregnant mother. Oh, no. That, um, so you don't want to be pregnant when Armageddon comes, and it could be any day, so don't get knocked up. People do, of course. Of course they do. But it, it, they, most Jehovah's Witnesses in my Worst day, you, certainly... Joseph was knocked up against a cart, weren't you? Wasn't it? <laughs> Out in Dorset no somewhere. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, 
it, it seems harder and harder to work out why people are drawn to this religion, uh, except for fear, except for paranoia, except for if you don't... I mean, that's the... When you first go in, though, it's really warm and family-esque and people are lovely, there's lots of socialising, but it's all superficial. It's quite corporate religion, actually. It's quite corporate. There's no tradition. There's no... They change the songs every five years. So when I went back to the Kingdom Hall they with Ryan... They change the songs every five years? Yeah. So who's benefiting from it? Are there kind of like figures like in Scientology who are super rich? Oh, Going Clear. Have you read Going Clear? I've seen their I've documentary. Seen the doc- yeah, the book quicker. is amazing because obviously there's a lot in it which is, you know, they just couldn't fit into the documentary. But again, that bit where you have people, you know, who've, who've since left and gone, yeah, it's just really weird because you're so far in before they start telling you the really mad stuff that you kind of... You, it's too far now. You can't go out of it because you now go, oh, the, oh, okay, right. So these aliens are, oh, okay. Well, I've been here five years, so that must just be, you know, it's that mm. bit of going that. And That's then the moment true. you leave the room, if for those who do manage to eventually leave that room, they go, whoa, that is how it works. You lured, it's comfortable, yeah. it's lovely, it's embracing, and then the aliens, and you go, well, oh, oh, no, no, I'm in now. Yeah. Yeah. That's, That's your life and your behavior. social life. Yeah, it's, it's a really oh, good it's, book. It's how yeah. abusive relationships work. Yes, it's exactly how abusive relationships work. And at first, the elders seem really nice and encouraging and warm. But after a while, you realise all of your behaviours are being modified. And I always say, if I'd read 1984, I would never have joined. I would never have joined. Well, that's on the book side of it, because we, we must make sure we, we get to books as well, otherwise people get cross. Um, you, for you, blind watchmakers, place, Jan, I, I met someone who, I, do you know what, I can't remember if it was Jehovah's Witnesses, it, was, it may have been a different Christian cult in Australia, a guy that I met about two years ago, and he said what happened to him was somehow he got hold of an AC Grayling book, just, I think it was just a collection of essays, like The Shape mm. of Things or The Form of Things, something like that. And he had it hidden under his mattress in the same way as, you know, most teenage boys would have had pornography hidden under a mattress at that time. And he would secretly, when he was certain everyone was asleep, read another essay by A.C. Grayling. And he was like mm. going this, oh, hang on, hang on. And then he, you know, eventually left. It was like he, he built, there was enough questioning information. So with Blind Watchmaker, what was it? I mean, when you started reading that, were the little moments as you kind of look at, you know, it's got some lovely illustrations in it, uh, 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 showing different kind of ideas of evolution and genes and memes. And was there a little bit where, within a, you know, how, how, how hard did you find the first few pages? That's quite hard to remember. I remember to what I remember is it was as I as I read it and contri- com- compared and contrasted with the Jehovah's Witness book on evolution, and I remember there was a hilarious illustrations in that. There was a picture in the in the Jehovah's Witness book had a blue cover. I've got that um, one. Yeah, it's called What Is it? Life or something, isn't it? It it's, is. Uh, I it's can't a hard, it. hard blue cover. Yeah. And there's a picture, an illustration of a man smashing a stereo with a hammer <laughs> and saying, nothing can come from mutation. <laughs> yeah. And I remember reading about mutation in The Blind Watchmaker and comparing and contrasting, because I'd always sort of known that was wrong. I'd always like gone, that's not the same, though. It's like when I was at Sunday school and I was about 15, um, and I used to basically just go along because I'd see my dad on a Sunday, so I'd have to go to Sunday school. And I remember, like trying to possibly convince myself that I agreed with it. I was like, well, maybe, I mean, because this story is so absurd and it feels so at odds with so much of what we know that maybe because it doesn't make sense, it has to be the true one because if it wasn't true, then how... You know, we'd have something better. Why would we be clinging to this? It's a fascinating thing, isn't it? (laughs) This is so mad 
that surely this could have only remained if it is true. That's <laughs> an, again the cognitive dissonance that is going on there. Yeah, exactly. As opposed to like going, oh, I'm not. I don't believe this, and that's fine. <laughs> that, that's perfectly fine. Instead, My, you're like, I'll have to work out how I can force myself to believe this. Yeah, I know. I know exactly what you mean. The sort of the stories in the Bible are just. I mean, they're so ridiculous. That like, when I look at it and I go, how was I ever plugged into this? I don't understand. And I sometimes do beat myself up a bit and think I feel stupid for having believed it. But I think when you're 14, your brain is so plastic. You're just, and you're also, I've read a lot about this since, you're looking for tribe because you have mm. to move away from your family. So it's a great time. That's why peer pressure works with teenagers. It's a great time That's to get into... That's when I Ketamine or Jesus. Or stand-up, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. My secret book, though, my secret under-the-bed book when I was a Jehovah's Witness that the elders would not have approved of was Keith Johnston's Impro. Oh, oh you love that amazing. book, don't you? Yes. I do. I sent you that yeah, when I interviewed you. Yeah, I've got a copy you, from you, yeah. It's... It changed my life. Yeah, me too. Oh, God, I love it so much. The, the, and I used to secretly improvise things because of this book. And like rebellious creative spirit, eh? Yeah, and I used to write little poems and create things. And then I had a secret Jehovah's Witness impro group off the back of that book. So we would go down. I found out that there were theatre sports, which was the sort of format that Keith Johnston yeah. uh, had invented, was quite big in Australia. And they came, like, out. we were on a beach town. I was basically, like, in a God-bothering version of Home and Away. So there was nothing like that. It was, like, an hour away to the coast of the city or more. So I, but I found out they were coming, and they were coming down from Brisbane to do these workshops where I was. So I asked three borderline Jehovah's Witnesses who were, like, they were, Je they were Jehovah's Witnesses, but they were, like, naughty ones. And I went, would you come with me? But we can't tell the elders because we'll get in trouble. And But also we couldn't tell the the improvisers either because they think we were weird and also we would be bringing Jehovah's name into reproach because we shouldn't be doing a worldly thing so we just had to pretend we were regular people and I remember they knew there was something weird about us though we were we were cult members going to do this because you couldn't do we couldn't do scenes about sex or violence or any anything that drama and comedy is normally made up of we couldn't do scenes about we were doing all these really like starchy prudish scenes and we had this secret group we were called Crowded Nows, which will date the story nicely. <laughs> um, um, God, we had fun doing it, though. And then I got invited to be a celeb... Like, a, not, not a celebrity judge, but, like, a, a guest judge at the big shows in Brisbane, like, the really big shows. I don't know how. I just hung out with them or something. I so shouldn't have been doing it. But the elders found out I was absolutely nicked. No one was allowed to go up. But loads of carloads of Jehovah's Witnesses would come up. And I would be some kind of... I look back now and I don't know how I got asked to judge theatre sports, but I did. And I would come onto the stage and, and uh, be, you know, just hold up the scorecards and stuff. And then we all got found out and that was it. It was over. But I held on to that book. And I remember the reason I knew I shouldn't have it specifically was the last chapter. Do you remember what the last chapter is about? No. It's about masks. Oh, yeah. Oh. And the masks is when you put on the mask and you just filter through this character. That's demons. Definitely demons, gang. I mean, that's 100% demons. We weren't allowed to do yoga because if your mind went blank, the demons would get in. Oh, that's such a shame. Yoga's so good for the back. <laughs> I know. Well, I'm so, so nice. into it now. It's one of my yeah. biggest pleasures. To be honest, when I came out of the Jehovah's Witnesses, I was more interested in yoga than sex. Still am. <laughs> I mean, that's the big pleasure. Do you know, Impro um, by Keith Johnson was the first love gift I got off a boy as well. To put Stop it him. right now. So he, um, it was a Valentine's Day present. It's so beautiful. Notes on myself, that chapter, and mm. about how we are... Ironically, it's about how not to be in the cult of society how to escape from a cult so when I came out 
the first thing I did was go to impro classes. And uh, it's like an anti-cult. It's like yes to everything, mm. openness to everything, let it flow through you. And that's how I taught myself to live was through improvisation. Wow. Yeah. God, how a... like, I did. I had no idea that that was so big for you. Oh, like, it's such a massive life-changing thing. It was huge. And I thought I'd got rid of it. I thought I've become a stand-up comedian. I've done all these things. I'm not a Jehovah's Witness anymore. And then when I went to see Ryan, I ended up locked in the back room of a kingdom hall by, th- by two elders. And there were no windows and they'd locked me in. They asked me to come in because we'd gone to the Kingdom Hall as a piece of strategy because Ryan wanted to leave the Jehovah's Witnesses without being disfellowshipped. And I said, if they think the moment they think you're apostate, they were trying to get him into a committee and I was like, don't go into, don't go into a room with them, whatever you do. Then they can't disfellowship you unless you go into a room with them. But they, but they were hanging out the front of his house. They were texting him all the time. He was having to go out the back way. And I was like, right, go to a meeting, not your own. Word will get back. Ryan's been to a meeting. I was pretending to be his aunt from London. And then they'll go, OK, well, he must be still into it. He's maybe just depressed and having a bad time. And that will buy you three to six weeks where they'll lay off a bit and maybe send you some nice messages and say in your own time. And that just buys you time. So we went to a meeting that wasn't his. And he said, right, let's leave right at the end as soon as the, the prayers happened. We'll just go. But what happened was, because those elders can't disfellowship you. They're from a different congregation. But what happened was someone saw him there. They rang one of his elders and the elder came. And so he looked up the back. Someone knocked, Someone tapped him on the shoulder and said, you have to come up the back right now. And he said, oh, I'm in the middle of the meeting. Can I come up at the end? And they said, don't leave the hall without, without talking to the elders. And he looked up the back and he said, they've got one of my elders here. So I was like, OK, what are you going to do? And he said, I'm going to pretend to go to the loo. Then I'm going to make a run for it and try and get past them. And I said, OK, I'll stay here as a decoy because if I'm here, they'll think you're here. Collateral. Sure. And so I then, at the end, went to go out and I got stopped by this little old sister who was like, where are you from? Are you a visitor? And I was like, yes, yes, yes. Where are you from? I said, London. London, Ontario? No, London, London, England. Oh, I watched Downton Abbey. That's in London. Not really, but okay, sure. Look, can I've got to get to the door. And then I, I get to the door and there's two elders like standing there and they're like, we need to speak with you. And I was like, are you looking for Ryan? They were like, we've spoken to Ryan now. We need to speak to you. And I was like, I think I know enough to, I know what to say and I'll go with them. But then they locked me in the room. They definitely locked on the door because locked the door because someone tried to come in, and they just interrogated me. They never introduced themselves, and they interrogated me for like half an hour about what I knew about Ryan, and eventually wanted to know who my elders were. And I gave them a name of an elder I could remember because I realised they they knew that I wasn't a witness. I'd said everything right. I'd done everything right. I'd, I was perfect. I was perfect, and they still knew. And they went, "We need to do a background check on you." And I was like. Oh, that's it. And I just stood up and I said, let me out of this room. This is not acceptable. This is why Ryan doesn't want to talk to you. This is why nobody wants to talk to you. You act like you're from the FBI. You have to let me out of this room. This is not nothing. And they went, oh, oh, oh," because they're not used to being talked like Mm. that by a woman. And they let me out. And as I walked out the door, like everything changed. It was like someone had cut the umbilical cord, again, topical. And I went, oh... I was so linked to them because I'd never said, let me go, let me out. Mm. You're in the wrong here. And this is oppression. I'd never said it. Because it's conditioning. You don't realise that that's a possible thing. I was so so still linked to it. I just didn't know, you know. And I cried all the way home, like from Vancouver to London. And I had so many epiphanies about myself. I, like, lost so much weight after that. I was just, like, without trying, I was just, like, it was, like, so much emotional baggage just fell off me. And I was, like... 
not that weight is always emotional baggage, hashtag fat positive, but it just that was in response that my body had was just everything that was baggage was just going to go. And it was just after that I started the Guilty Feminist podcast and I was like, I do not want to live in a patriarchy anymore. I will fight patriarchy. It was just like a really, really intense response that I've been owned all this time. Now, you're, you're going to be writing, well, you have written about this for the Guilty Feminist mm. book, which is... So, so what, what, are you trying to, what, what are you trying to do with the book that you don't do with the podcast in terms of... Because I presume there are ways that you are partly telling some of the story you've just told us, aren't you, in that book? Yeah. I, well, it's different chapters. It's sort of about, you know, what I think feminism is and what it's for and, you know, then various things about confidence and how we feel about our bodies and the world and stuff. But throughout it, I talk about my own story and um, and the publishers said we don't want it to replicate the podcast too much because, you know, we want... It People to have new. the podcast. Exactly. Mm. And I was like, oh, I've said quite a lot about feminism now. I write new things. But I had to sort of rethink and reframe and research and it was actually a really good exercise. But, yeah, I think all of our feminism comes from a different place, but it all comes from a place of feeling less than oppressed, marginalised. Um, and then... Also, now, sort of seeing how much privilege I have, actually. You know, yeah, I, I was in a cult, but I'm not in a cult anymore, and I'm white. And I live in a, I live in a white body every single day. And so I, I, was able to leave the, I was able to leave the oppression that I was living with. And if you're a person of colour, if you're a woman of colour, you can't ever leave the, the the patriarchal cult you live in and the way that society will oppress and marginalise you. So it's really important for me as a white woman to be fighting for the... Uh, for, to, for, to be fighting um, against the oppression and marginalisation of women of colour, of queer women, of disabled women because they're living with something that I'm not living with and understanding what those intersections are has been such a valuable thing for me. Working with refugees has totally changed my life. It's really new. We've only been working with refugees for a few months. It's totally changed my life. It's made it so much... I've, had, I've got so much more perspective and understanding, and it's made me so happy, weirdly. Um, which I shouldn't... I don't mean it, like, wasn't that yeah, great for I me, but, you know, like... Everyone benefits from doing community activism and volunteering because it's not... It, it's not, like, the the idea about it that is wrong is that oh I will help some people but actually it's like I'll get to learn from people that I'm working with and I'll get to swap skills with people and see what I can do that might be useful and in doing so completely shift my perspective and broaden out and stuff like that like that was the thing with um with arts emergencies like meeting young people and realizing that like obviously it's going I'm gonna learn loads more than I would impart yeah. in that respect and be like, oh, this is incredible. Yeah, but also it's like the basis of humanity is like being kind to one another and trying to <laughs> get closer to one another and say, yeah, and, yeah sorry, what, I'm, no, I'm like, I another agree. thing. It's sort of yeah. what you learn, what, what you, I just think you gain so much more than you give when you dare to go into a scary space, like, I'm going to go in and talk to... T One thing I did for the Guilty Feminists was I went into a classroom of teenage boys to talk to them about feminism. And I decided to do it as a discussion group and find out what they thought already about it. And I was genuinely... Like, I don't... I'm not a nervous performer. Like, I really generally enjoy performing. I look forward to it. I don't feel scared before I go on stage, usually. I was so 
sweaty before I went to talk to 12 teenage boys. I thought, what if they just hate me or heckle me or, you know, and they were so lovely, like inner city school. And I was like, you guys give me hope for the future. They were so, they already knew so much about feminism and they had such an amazing perspective on the world. And yeah, I think... Laura Bates was talking about that, wasn't she, on the last podcast as well, that bit where she kind of went into a school and initially it was like a slightly different thing where all the guys were like, oh, oh feminists is coming, we all know what... And then it's kind of like, oh, hang on a minute, this isn't what we... Oh, oh, OK. Oh, Great, this thanks. Seems, this seems quite <laughs> comprehensible. Yeah, this seems like a good idea. Yeah. yeah. You know, getting away, again, as we, as we mentioned when we talked to Matt Haig uh, on one of the podcasts, that bit, the, the kind of the, the oxygen of actually... Uh, meeting people who uh, may well, by a lot of the modern context of media, try and be created as demons. And then you actually yeah. go, oh, no, this is... Yeah. You know, on both sides there. Oh, God, I'm going to... Teenagers. Yeah, what school. are they going to be like? Yeah, yeah. yeah. A, boy, a boy's going to kind of, you know, hate me talking about feminism or... Um, and I think that's where comedy, actually, it's it can be such a powerful force. And it is, no matter... It, no matter what jokes you tell, you probably are having a social impact. Um, and, I mean, unless they're just completely silly, you know, escape from, you know, what what the world is giving us right now. And I've been thinking lately a lot, in fact, we were talking about the other day online, um, about how colonial some comedy seems to me now. Like, when I see straight, cis, white men doing whole sets about being transgender in a way that it feels like really it feels really colonial feels really like and they go well why can't I talk about these ideas for everyone and don't you know free speech like you absolutely can talk about it you've demonstrated that by talking about it of course you can do that but you a bit like white men with guns could go into India and Africa and smash everything up and build new things on top yeah you can do that you absolutely can do that is that what you want to do, though? It feels to me, when I see those sets now, I often think of, you know, that um, sketch in Goodness Gracious Me with um, oh, going for an English. Yeah, yeah. Where the Indian people go in to an English restaurant and behave satirically as sure. English people. I'm just explaining in case someone hasn't heard it. I know you guys yeah, have heard it. No, no, I didn't it. mean to be like, um, oh, I actually know it. Oh. <laughs> as um, uh, a satire on how English people behave in Indian restaurants sometimes that's when I see comedians doing jokes not disregard, uh, disregarding groups that they do not represent I think I imagine going for an English I think you're going in and you're smashing around in a transgender space but do you know what, as well, mm. what I was thinking was it's something that I've seen and I don't want to be too gendered about it but I've definitely seen Something in the way that society, uh, what's the word, conditions people, is I quite often will see a male comedian speaking as if they are an authority mm. or as if they are objective or as if they are representative of all humanity, mm. for example. So they will be like, the world is this and mm. my perspective is the world. And I see that less when it the person doesn't fit that small privilege category of like cis white straight man like because other people are made more aware of like just well and also never given that space to be like my experience is the universal experience because mm. you know they're told their whole life that like they're not and they're other and they're weird and stuff like that so like I think 
there's something interesting, particularly weirdly with stand-up, but I assume as well with writers and all kinds of people like speaking creatively like that, where you, it's sort of the re- refusal to accept that actually listening to other people's experiences and believing them would be beneficial to them. So like with the with with transphobic comedians being like, I'll tell you my perspective, and it's like, well cool it's not your story yes and the fact that you're refusing to accept anyone else's pardon me experiences as genuine and being like shut up you listen to the truth it it just makes it so pointless and boring and shit (laughs) yeah because it's divorced from reality your point is a really salient one where they're speaking as if they own the whole world as if their their experience is a universal one because of course uh white straight men have been brought up to believe that's true because the hero is normally through their eyes. Like if we're watching a movie, uh, Hollywood has done a great disservice to the world in making us em- empathise almost exclusively with white straight men for 100 years. I mean, that is the, it's, it's, so it becomes the dominant experience. And Hannah Gadsby made a great point in Annette, her amazing show about this, where she said white straight men are not used to being a subcategory. So they really object to it. It's sort of like, you know, not they, not all white men, Robin. But... But it is true. I'm brought up on a, you know, as you said, the, you know, Laura Mulvey was the one who wrote the, about the, the male gaze, wasn't she? And the, the, yeah, it's, it's, it's in there. I'm yeah. the youngest, I'm the only male... And the, you know, as my sisters always go, oh, look, here comes golden balls. You know, <laughs> it's, 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 it can't be, you know, I can't say that I, that's not part of, it's You're, true, it's yeah. true. That, that, and you, it's hard, isn't it, to sometimes go, oh, yeah, this is not the mean average of human experience. This is the top. Two percent, yeah, and, it and it's also it's just explain. a specific one. It's a specific one. Like, like I think we like when you watch late night television, American. It, you know, if you're a Jimmy Far- Fallon or a Jimmy Kimmel or a Jimmy Corden or a, you know, any of the big Jimmys, that experience is the same experience. It's a white experience. It's a heterosexual experience. It's an f- experience of being a father. It's an experience of living in Los Angeles. That is a that is a unique experience. That is a specific mm. experience, but it's it's presented as the generic whole and they try to like i see that they are trying to change the culture because they're trying to employ a more like realistic collection of people as writers that actually represents the reality of who lives in the world and stuff like that but at the same time it's like but we'll keep the boss the same can we just keep yeah a friend of mine was really sweet to me they were like oh, do you know, I'd love to see you on a late-night talk show. You could present that. And I was like, I have more chance of dying from a spider bite. <laughs> like, <laughs> who's going to do that? And, it, yeah, it is funny to think you can see people's efforts in certain ways to try and change things, but you can see the limit and the timidity when it comes to actually changing the power the, structures. The fear. The, actually, uh, Three Guineas, the Virginia Woolf book, um, changed my life significantly in a room of one's own. It made it was my big feminist awakening. That and Erica Young's Fear of Flying, but the but uh, the idea. I think it's in Three Guineas where Virginia Woolf says, "In a hundred years, a book will not be written by a man or a woman. It'll just be written by a person." How disappointed would she have been um, with now? And it. I always think of that, and I always think of what what women then thought life would be like now, and I think they'd be really horrified by how how unlikely it is that a woman would be fronting something that was not for women, but that it was for humans. Um, or how unlikely it is that a person of colour would be front... I mean, they wouldn't have thought that because they were probably pretty racist, to be honest. But um, it is still pretty weird, isn't it, how 
how weird it is if the person of color. I mean, that's changing a bit. There's Nish Kumar doing the Match Report. There's Trevor Noah doing um, the Daily Show. But every time someone does that, then people go. I mean, I think they're trying too hard with this political correctness, which which God, shows that it hasn't moved. Yeah, you know, that yeah. those people will go. I watched one of those superhero films, and they were trying too hard. Yeah, and that mm-hmm. that, that like... seems to kind of be. Well, no, they're not trying too hard. It's just because that shows how rare. How rare 50 it is. years ago that George A. Romero did Night of the Living Dead. Now, this is, I'm a big fan this, of, of very often low-budget genre films, way ahead of everything else. Night of the Living Dead, who's the hero of that? A black guy, 1968, first, oh. and, and in a lot of Romero's films. And a lot of the kind of the horror movies are there going, and, and female heroes as well. Who are the people who survive? And you go 50 years on. And, and, in fact, that was one of the things that I found uh, was a great pity in um, Assault on Precinct 13, the hero of Assault on Precinct 13, the good guy cop in John Carpenter's film, is a black guy. He's, he's the hero. And uh, when they remade it, he wasn't the hero anymore. He's, he's, hero. He, he's an all right hero, but he's, still, he's now the crook, whereas before he was the lawman. He's a good crook. You know, he's one of the, one of the better crooks in the sort of that. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and, I thought and who's the hero now? It's just a, it's a white. It was a white guy. In, of course, in the it was. But that's How interesting, isn't that? it? Nineteen seventy-five. In some ways, it's got better. I think in some ways, the world's got so much better, and in some ways, the world's got worse. Well, also, it's just always going to remain glacially slow and complicated in so many ways, and then that's just going to frustrate people. Like it's that sign of like, I can't believe I'm still protesting this shit. Like everybody's mm. like. You get to a point where you're like, no, this is not anywhere near good enough. But then also, it's all so unexpected. So there's no rules as to what as to what might win or be successful or what might catch hold and supercharge change or progress or something in in a really positive way. And like, hey, remember, this... no ten year olds give a fuck that the next Doctor Who's going to be a woman. Of course they don't. They don't. No, no, they don't care they about don't any care. of those things. You know, hopefully, I mean, certainly of the ones that I've, you know, there's lots of things. So maybe there'll be a huge paradigm shift suddenly. I'm fascinated by how... terrible news for me. Who's uh, the oppressor? Uh-huh. Oh, I better enjoy my last couple of weeks of oppressing. Shut up, Josie. What are you talking about? But also, the, the, for me, the irony is if people like stand-up comedians in their 50s who suddenly feel threatened because they can't accept where they are in their lives and they can't accept that they maybe don't have anything to say and they can't accept that maybe their story is literally told all the time over and over again and, like, they they might not have anything interesting to say. If instead of reacting to that with a flood of victimisation towards people who are already, like, having to deal with enough victimisation, thanks, mate, if, if instead of that they were like, I'm going to go on a quest for knowledge and beauty and excitement and then write a show that's all about celebrating that, people, you know, anyone who tries to make something beautiful and wonderful in earnest, it doesn't matter who they are, like, that deserves to be appreciated, you know. And and yet instead it's like, oh, I feel threatened for no reason. It's, well, can I just mention that my Edinburgh Fringe show, yes. Chaos of Delight, at the Museum of Scotland, and I'm not quite in my 50s, only in my late 40s, but nevertheless... Does film most of those remits, and tickets point. are now available online. That's <laughs> my point. Like you know, what you have done in your work and what you do in your work is like try to learn as much as possible and to love it. Like that's exciting. It's oh. good, and that and that and that does then become a more uh, universally human experience because we all have a curiosity, or certainly anyone going out to a fringe show has a curiosity for life. Yeah, yeah, um, and it, and uh, uh, that that becomes a relatable experience. 
I am also very encouraged by the next generation and the way that children are so much less binary now because certainly in... I mean, I'm talking about the liberal pockets that I, I go around in. I'm very aware of that. But how much children now don't... How many four-year-old boys are in dresses and, you know, girls are in superhero capes and... And because no, no one's commenting on it and parents are going, it was no big deal. Yeah. I think children have always been so much, well, obviously they have, always been so much less binary. And how much the binary is cultural and we're going to find this out. I hope I live long enough to see the binary pretty much fall away. Because I think that's going to happen. Well, it's, it's interesting when you think about like, I, I, I see things as happening in reaction to each other. And something that I'd noticed and been really frightened by is how much over the past 10 years, for some reason, like from babyhood to like adolescence, those gender binaries have been so heavily enforced by like product and um, marketing and culture and stuff. And I was like, why is this happening? It feels like a step back. I, I'm horrified by it. Like I'm, you know, having a child, I don't want that to be yeah. their life. And it almost feels like that that's like a fear lashing out against the inevitable. And you see lots more, uh, almost in reaction to that now, people parenting a bit more like... Well, that's nonsense. Come on. Yeah, do what you want. If you let small. children pick, small children pick sparkly stuff and they're attracted to bright colours and that it, you just let children pick, it's it's totally, totally, uh, it's totally non-binary for in most children. It's fascinating and so exciting and I can't wait to see how your child, which I will not impose a gender on, will but also come to the world. That, But that's where it becomes really complicated when I think about transphobia on things like mom's net where they're like deciding to be terrified about one aspect of gender which completely div like is so unhelpful and unreal compared to it like if it's like taking one small part out of context yeah. that kind of is still so clearly fun, part of everything it? else no yeah. it feels yeah i agree anyway Sorry, I just said, yeah, I've got a signal, so we've got to leave the studio. Oh, gosh, See, uh, Because you've been talking about that, can I just do a plug for Grace Petrie, who uh, was interviewed on the show a few weeks ago and is on tour and has a song about exactly the issue you've been talking about, which uh, is a very good song. She's the best. And black, she gets black a tie tonight. Uh, is, uh, she gets is a lot great. of shit on, um, on the well, internet. Can because I? She's great. And you may mm. do any form of plugging. Like, I wanted okay, to ask I'll... you one very quick thing, which is yeah. for people who are... Uh, Perhaps trying to think about they are maybe caught in a dogmatically rigid kind mm -hmm. of world or on the cusp of that. Are there any other books as well where you just thought this the idea of the of, of the freedom of thought that offer offer that as, as an early starting point? Um, well, I love Keith Johnson's Impro, which I've said. I've also referenced 1984, um, which I know the, that's an extremely famous book. Um, Arthur Quiller Couch's collected essays, which were really useful if, because I'd missed out on university education. Now, Arthur Quiller Couch wouldn't want me reading them because when he was at Cambridge, he, um, he, he got very angry when they allowed women in. You know, women couldn't sit for degrees, but they were allowed to yeah. learn study. And uh, this is a true story. He came in, he'd always address, he'd always start his lectures with, sir, uh, with, with gentlemen. He'd always, he'd always start his lectures with gentlemen. And when women came in, he kept saying, gentlemen. And then throughout the term, more and more boys would sleep in or go off or whatever. And the girls were obviously very willing to learn. And so they were there. And one week there was only one boy and all the rest were <laughs> girls or women. And he started the lecture with sir and directed the whole thing to the one man who was in the audience 
The next week, that guy obviously didn't turn up because he was too embarrassed. And he walked in, f- packed full of women. He looked around and said, as there is no one in attendance today, the lecture is cancelled, <gasps> and walked out. What a jerk! He was a real jerk. His collection of essays was my university education. And I am delighted to say that I... This is, this is what I call parasite feminism. I learnt this term from an artist in Dublin, where you, you like a tick on a dog. You suck the blood out of the patriarchy. You don't start your own thing. You, you use all the resources. And I, I, every time I learn from Arthur Quiller Couch, I take, I take a secret pleasure in the fact that he would hate that. Um, here are some books I just wanted to say. I'm, read, I'm reading at the moment The Wild Other, a book by Clover Stroud. Uh, and it's really, really beautiful. And it's about the her mother fell off a horse and was in a, a condition where she couldn't, you know, she was just sort of alive but um, on a life support system. Um, and it's a really beautiful feminist golden book that I love. And also a book that hasn't come out yet, but I got a uh, one of those copies that they sometimes send to people before, I guess, because I've got a podcast. And it's called um, My Country, A Syrian Memoir. It's got by a guy called Kasim Eid, who you might know through the press because he was doing a lot of um, uh, informal media when he was in Syria. But it's about the situation in Syria. And if you are in any doubt as to whether Assad is a dictator um, or the white helmets are real and all of that stuff that's going on at the moment, all the conspiracy theories about Syria, you will not be in any doubt after you read this book. Um, because he was on the he was on the side of the rebels, but he tells it like it is. Um, my country, a Syrian memoir, and when as soon as it comes out, read it. It's it's sad, but it's a real page turner. Josie, I'll give you the last word because you don't know you might not be in round for the next one because you might be giving I'll be, birth. I'll be in next week. Um, I I've just started reading uh, Homish to Catalonia because I was so sick of uh, people saying read some Orwell, the left of fascists, and I was like, I'm going to find some fun quotes where George Orwell specifically talks about fighting fascists. But uh, I've only just started it, and like, I don't feel like it's going to go go well for anyone involved. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, I won't so. tell you what happened in the end. Yes, don't spoil it for me. As far as I know, I think the Atticus won. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. This episode, we'd specifically like to thank Pippa Tolfts, Andrew G, Sinead Mottishaw, Kath Little, Deborah Buchanan, Jenny Wing, Sarah Neal, Kirsty Saxton and Jennifer Ackerman. Yes, thank you very much to those supporters and all our supporters. And if you'd like to be one, you can go to patreon.com slash bookshambles and pledge your support there. There's lots of tiered rewards and excellent stuff you can get there. Uh, you can be a guest on Bookshambles if you'd like, if you pledge at that level. And we'll be back next week with one of our live recordings uh, when we did the London launch of Dean Burnett's The Happy Brain. That will be in your ears next Thursday. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles were produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Mm-hmm.